You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. See how much we'll see how much we get through. Uh, the title of the share is the curious, curious case of the quail in the night, uh, which I imagine many of you are aware that, that there is a uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, story entitled uh, "The Curious." Uh, it's not a, the story is not titled that. I think the story is titled "Silver Blaze," but it talks about the curious case of the um, of the dog in the night. And the curious thing of the dog in the night is that it didn't bark. Right? That was the curious thing. Um, so the question here. Is going to be. I'm going to start off with a with a uh, with a teaser. Is what happened to the quail in the night? Okay, so we'll start off. If you take a look at the, uh, we're going to start off as we usually do by going through the whole background of the story, putting it in context. Then we'll move on to specific issues related to the interpretation. All right. So Shmot Perik Design begins. Uh, right, the Jews leave Elim where they had the where they had the oasis, and uh, we lo- we locate ourselves. It's two months after they. Right, it's the it's the fifteenth day of the, of, the, of the second month after they leave Mitzrayim, and immediately they complain. And here's what the Jews say to Moshe: They say, "Why couldn't we have died at God's hand in Eretz Mitzrayim?" And they have a fascinating description of Eretz Mitzrayim: "Bishiftenu al Sir Habasar." Mitzrayim is a place is a place where we sat over the flesh pots, um, lechem lasoba, and we ate um, bread, and we had enough of it. Right, so they remember the, the Halcyon days. Of right of Abdus in Mitzrayim, where they had meat to eat and they had bread to eat. But we should pay attention, right? So Bishiftenu al Sira Basar could be an even more uh, even more impressive than have we had enough bread to satiety. Like we're standing by the meat pots, so we can have fresh meat whenever we want. Uh, right, there are no limits. Um, or it could be that well, there was meat available and we had enough bread. We had enough bread, but there's less meat than bread. But that's their their depiction of it seems to be that we had. All the meat we could want, and all the bread we could need. Okay, right now you've taken us out to this, to this, to this wilderness to to kill everybody with, kill everybody with uh, hunger. Okay, now it gets more complicated. So Moshe says, so Hashem says to Moshe, it's going to rain bread, and the people will come and go out and collect their, what they need every day. So I can test them to see whether they'll follow my Torah or not. But on Friday. It'll right on Friday. They should prepare. It'll be double. Okay, so let's watch. They said we sat on the sirah basar, we ate lechem lasova, and God responds to Moshe and says nothing about quail, nothing about meat. Right? It's all about bread. I'm gonna I'm gonna rain bread from heaven. Okay, but then Moshe and Aaron talk to Bnei Israel, and they right they have this new description. Right? They have a distinction between Arab and Boker. They say in the evening, you'll see that God took you out of Mitzrayim. And in the morning, you'll see Kavod Hashem. And why bother complaining to us? This is really mysterious, because it doesn't mention either meat or bread. It just says, stay tuned. Night and right, Evening and morning, you'll find out that God's really important. Now, after Moshe and Aaron say this to Bnei Israel, right? So let's watch, right? The Bnei Israel talk to Moshe, they say, meat and bread. Moshe responds to them and says, bread. And Moshe and Aaron talk to Bnei Israel and are completely vague. They just mention the categories Erev and Boker. And then Moshe himself talks to Bnei Israel, and he says the following: Right. So Moshe promises them, you know what? At night you're going to get meat, and during the day, in the morning, you're going to get bread. So he ties all these things together, but we don't know what these two previous paragraphs were all about. Uh, right. So now, now they're going to get both meat and bread. Now Moshe says to Aaron, 
And again, they say something which right, tell everybody to come near, but it, and there's a quote Hashem, and but there's no there's no meat and bread anymore, right? So mystery we're not going to talk about tonight is why do we keep going back and forth between right? We have two scenes in which they mention Kavod Hashem here, Moshe and Aaron talked to Bnei Yisrael, and here, um, right here and here, uh, Moshe, uh, Aaron talks to Bnei, so Aaron talks to Bnei Yisrael, and there's Kavod Hashem and no meat and bread in between. There's the one scene where Moshe says, we don't know to whom, but apparently Bnei Yisrael, but he says, Lachem, and he talks about meat and bread. Okay, what actually happens? Vahiba Erev, so here it is in the evening, Vatal Haslav, and so this, this Slav, we'll call it quail, right, arises, Vatichasa and it covers the whole camp. In the morning, there's something else. There's a Shikhvat Hatal, there's a layer of maybe dew, um, right, which is around the camp. All right, and then the shikvat hatal rises, and we discover that Amidbar there is something called a dak michuspas, a dak hakforahlaaretz. And Bnei Yisrael say to each other, "What is this thing?" Right, manhu, and it becomes known as man. And Moshe says, "That's the bread." Who alechem? Okay, and he tells them, "Right, go collect this the way God the way God commanded." So here's the thing, right? So the night there's the slav, and in the morning there's this bread, and Moshe says, "Go collect the bread." What happened to the Slav? And we don't hear about the Slav again. We don't hear about the meat again until Sefer Bamidbar. Right? Here's the story. We have right, the whole, right? They have, right? So we'll trace it through again. Just if you watch it, right? In the very beginning, B'nai Yisrael complained about bread, about meat and bread. Moshe responds and says, here comes bread. There's a, then there's a paragraph which talks about morning, evening and morning. And then Moshe connects evening to meat and Morning to bread, and that is another passage which seems right, which seems irrelevant. And then uh, Moshe tells them once again, well, it's a little different because he says, Benhar, instead of Ba'erev, right, Batsar Lachol, he says, Benhar Bayim, which is a little earlier in the day, right, the afternoon, you'll get to eat meat. And in the morning, in the morning, Tithbu Lachem, and it seems connected because here it says, you'll eat meat, and here it says, you'll eat bread to satiety, Tithbu Lachem. So it sounds exactly to their complaints. And in fact, Moshe says, I heard what you're complaining about. So here, they said we used to sit on the flesh pots. Well, here's meat. And in the morning, they said we used to eat eat, eat bread to satiety. Well, here's bread to satiety. And then in the evening, the the meat comes, the slav. And in the morning, the bread comes. And then the quail disappears. The meat disappears. And all we have is a whole long story about the bread. Okay, they collect the bread. Bread. How much bread? All sorts of things, very, very mysterious. Okay, we have the bread, the bread uh, stops for Shabbos. Um, right, we learned that, we learned that story. And then people go out on Shabbos anyway, and Hashem complains. Um, and then Moshe tells Aaron, take some of the, the man, take some of the bread, and put it as a keepsake of the Aaron, and that's it. All right, so that's my first question is, what happened to the, um, what happened to the meat? What happened to the quail? It's promised, it shows up, but they never eat it. They never collect it. Nothing more is said about it whatsoever. What happened to it? Right? And it's not it's not as if it's just like a throwaway because it comes at different times. Right? They right, they say we we used to have flesh pots and bread. And Moshe responds, Well, don't, tomorrow you're gonna get a scene at Erev and you're gonna get a scene at Boker. Erev is the meat, and Boker is the bread, and the meat comes at Erev and then disappears. Okay. That's a that's problem number one. Which we may or may not get to solve in the context of the shear. All right, right, um, right. So Rashi explains the connection between Erev and Basar 
and Bukir and Lechem. He says, okay, you complain to God about the flesh pots. When do people fit at flesh pots? At night. People only eat flesh at night. And you said we eat bread. We used to eat bread to satiety. When do people eat bread? In the morning. Right? So it's a two meal a day system. You have a, a staple meal during the day. You have your you have your you have your meat at night. And so God responds, everything that you ask is going to be provided to you, except as we say that we don't see it happening. Okay. Here the um the Medrash Sechelto, which is not which is a late Medrash, comes along and um, and says, right, you made this complaint. Therefore they say to them, Ooh, no. While you're sleeping on your beds at night, Hashem is going to send you your parnasa. Okay, right? So that's why it's it's evening and morning, because really it's all supposed to happen while they're right, while they're asleep. They wake up in the morning and magically they are provided for. But the Sechotov says, that although God is giving them the meat, he's not happy about the meat. He gives it to them with a dark face. Because he says, you know what? They asked about the meat, but they weren't actually um, lacking meat. They had lots of animals. They just wanted to save their animals. So they said, right, but they were really full, and yet they were complaining about meat. So God gives them the meat, but he gives in ungraciously. But the bread, God gave in to the bread, right? God is happy to give them a man because, in fact, they're in a wilderness, and it's agriculture. So they have a reasonable complaint about the man, but not a reasonable complaint about the, about the quail. So now we have a possible explanation, which is that possibly part of the, re- or, or the underlying reason that we don't hear about the meat again is that God was really not happy about the meat because they didn't really deserve the meat. They didn't have a good ground. They didn't have any grounds for complaints about the meat. They had plenty of meat. But as for bread, that was a fair point. They didn't have any access to bread in, in, the, in the wilderness. So they should ask how we're going to get bread if we have no, we have no agriculture. Okay. Um, but it ha- might have its own story um, about, the, about the Slavs. So now, uh, um, Rav Yosef Ben Kaspi offers the following explanation. He says, when we sat on the flesh pots, they complained about the bread and about the meat. And God only fulfilled their desires about the meat for one day, one evening. And God, but God fulfilled their complaints about the bread for 40 years. Okay, so what's he picking up on? He's picking up on that at the end of the passage we just read. It says, The Jews ate the man for 40 years. It doesn't say that they ate the Slav for 40 years. Uh, but the Slav came. So Bikaspi has this very clever answer. The Slav only came for one night. But the man was for 40 years, so the Slav sort of disappears in the narrative because it's just a, a one-night thing. Okay, that's a very mysterious thing. Like, what is it? Um, what's the point of the Slav for one night? Why does God give in? What do they learn from it? All very interesting. But we understand, at least in his version, why there's no parallelism in the story. Um, okay, maybe he's right, maybe he's not. He says, um, that, right, he says, Therefore, he says, next year, Ah, so Ben Kaspi says, hang on a sec. I know that in Sefer Bamidbar, 
there's another episode in which they have quail. And that one ends badly. Right? That's right, that's when they end up right and so but why are they complaining? And they're complaining about meat again. Why are they complaining about meat? So that proves that the meat must have stopped. So it must be that there was this one night they had the meat and then it stops and then they complain again and, and we have the second episode in Sefer Midbar. So he says, but I don't know why it happens these two times. I don't know why there are these two sudden two scenes where all of a sudden they're hungry for meat. Maybe he says it's because of an astrological thing that they're at the astro meat when they were under the influence of the signs of the kosher kosher edible animals. Uh, or maybe it's because of the, the season. That's why it was right. It was because of the right, the season is is the season that makes people want to barbecue. Um, or maybe it says Maybe it's because, right, it, because because maybe it's because it was the sudden shock of moving from what they perceived as the plenty of Mitzrayim. And I guess there was, you know, this is a vision. There was plenty in Mitzrayim. They had to work very hard, but it never says they starved. Uh, but you know, and they right, and they were very they were they they were tired from the trip and they hadn't eaten lots of meats, uh, right? Because they were because they were. Um, Stingy about their own animals, and then the next year when they were leaving Harsinai, that was also right. There was they always had, they asked they asked for meat whenever they were about to head out on the road again. Okay, that's his explanation. Now, if we take a look at the episode about Midbar he's talking about, so we see let me read that a that a, that a, a, a wind rises from God and it brings in the Slavim in Hayam. So it's not quite the same episode we had. But right, we had the, the thought rising here. It's the um, here it's right. I think that was the, the scene that we had. We had check the language. Um, had by Vatala Slav, right? The Slav rises here. The Slav does not rise, it is right um, on the top of uh, page three. Here, the Slav is brought by wind from the sea, and the people stand up all day and all night. So it seems like the Slav occurs during the day, um, and not at, not at night. Um, right, because the people get up all day and all night, uh, and um, and the whole next day, and they gather the slav. But here, all of a sudden, we discover that there's something very different about the slav and the man. And this is really what I want to um, a big part of what I want to focus on. Right, so they ask the slav, they gather the quail. The one who got the least gathered ten huge mounds. Right, ten huge mounds of quail. Now, if we go back to the man, right? Remember that the man, that one of the key things about what happens in the man, and we'll see it in more depth in a moment. But just to emphasize it for now, is when they get the man. So one of the things that one of the key lines about it is, um, right? So the marbe and the mamit, the ones who have more and less gather, but it turns out by the man. Everybody gets the same amount. But when we go to the quill, all of a sudden it turns out that the one who gets the least gets ten chamarim, which suggests that the one who gets more gets more. So the, the so the, the basar is given in a different way than the than, at least in the second episode, than the man. The man is given in a way that prima facie seems to be equal in some way. Um, whereas the, the Slav is given in a way where everybody grabs whatever they can and you end up with more and less. But the episode of ends, right, with everybody dying, right? They still have the meat between their teeth, and all of a sudden, right, and all of a, and all of a sudden, God gets angry at them and smites them down. So, 
a little bit interesting, right? That that episode, right? So the man is plainly a gift. The quail ends up being a right, ends up being a source of death. The man is given equally. The quail is a free for all. Um, and maybe right that maybe there's some hint being given that the man is given uh, with a smile at during the morning, and the quail is given with a frown at night. But the question is, is that this scene right? So Minkowski says, well, this scene happens later, uh, right? But midbar, right? Well, we there's a one night, there's a one night of quail in in the midbar, and then there's this terrible scene of a midbar a year later. And the question is, so. What's the relationship between the episodes? Uh, maybe something terrible happens then also, which is just right. But it would it would undermine the whole message of the man if we were to talk about what happened with the what happened with the quail, which was really not a nice thing at all. Um, but was the quail given equally in the same way that the man was? We don't know. Yosef Bechorshor offers here the thesis. This is his general. Uh, thesis is that um, stories that appear that seem to appear in Shemos and Bamidbar and are very similar, whereas most inter- most um, interpreters try and explain a, a narrative flow that this is why what looks like a similar story happens again later, either because it shows that Ben Israel haven't advanced or there are subtle differences that explain how they have advanced. But Khorshor has the radical thesis that it's the same story in Shemos and Bamidbar, and you have to figure out which one is right in the timeline. And which one is either a flashback or a um, or right or going much earlier? So Bechor Shor says here is the following: It seems to me that this is the exact same story, right here in the the story of the quail in Shmot is the exact same story as the story of Kivrota to Ava, where the, where they die in Balotcha. Ella she'agav she'diberbeman it just right. So really, the way Bechor Shor reads this is the people complain about meat and bread, and Moshe says, "You know what? God will eventually give you both meat and bread," and then proceeds to give them the bread. And then a year later, they say, "Hey, what about the meat?" And he gives them the meat, but the meat kills them. But since, but we, if we didn't mention the meat, right, right now we'd wonder, "Hey, they complain about meat and bread, and God only complains." Responds to the bread, isn't he going to respond to the meat? So we say, don't worry, there was the bread, right? There was the meat's going to come, All right? That's a very odd and um, odd and um, sort of peculiar vision. Like, what isn't you, know, you could try and claim that the Slav and Shmot, they, right? Remember, they never eat the Slav and Shmot, it just says that the Slav arose, so maybe God prepared the Slav that would be coming a year later. Um, but that implies that this whole that this whole narrative, that the narrative is going to lead inevitably to Kibrotetava. So this is a very strange explanation before Shore offers. Um, but it has one strong thing to speak for it, which is that it explains why nobody eats the meat in um nobody eats the meat in um in Shmot. And it uh, the alternative, the only alternative we have right now is if in Kaspi's peculiar notion that they did eat the meat for one night and then they were happy for a year, then they complained again. Right, that has its own psychological uh, odd things. Um, Bechor Shor offers a second explanation for his uh, proof for his thesis. He says, So if Moshe saw the, that the, 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 the quail came that one night 
and satisfied them. So why is it that when they complain in the Midbar before he brings gives them the slav, why does Moshe turn to God and say, "What are we going to slaughter all the all the goats to satisfy them? All you need is one flight of passenger quail." Um, right. So so Bechor Shor says it has to be the same story because if it were not the same story, then well, he doesn't bring this proof, but I think it's a really good proof. Then why are they never mentioned as eating it here? And secondly, why does Moshe express incredulity that their needs can be satisfied when they have been satisfied? Um, and all he has to do is give them a barbecue once a year. They're not asking for it um, for permanently. So there's an advantage to Ibn Kaspi's uh, explanation that he keeps the flow of the narrative, but we don't really understand why it's happening that way. And the Khorshur is, uh, breaks up the chronology, but he has um, two really good proofs for his um, for his explanation. Okay, so there's our so we have one possibility of Ben Kaspi that the there was Slav for one night, and another possibility before sure that there are no Slav at this point at all either. It's just a foreshadowing. Ramban offers yet another possibility. Here's what Ramban says. It's possible, or it seems likely, that um, God never promised them that, or at least in the beginning, God didn't promise them that they, the man was going to last for their entire trip. They thought the man was only going to fall for the next day or two while they were staying in this place. And they figure, and then we're going to move to a place where we can actually get bread. But now Moshe says to them, um, after it falls, um, or at least the second time Moshe speaks to them, but now Moshe tells them, no, you know what? You're going to get both the meat and the bread for all 40 years. And the Ramban thinks that Chazal thought, I'm not convinced by this, but I'm, at least I don't know what his proof is. Um, but Ramban thinks that Chazal's position is that actually the Slav was with, was with them for all 40 years, just like the man was. And he says, that seems right. Because they complained about two things. And God heard their complaints about both things, both the meat and the bread. And he's going to bring them their uh, their desires. Because unlike Ibn, uh, unlike, uh, Ibn Kaspi, Ramban, and, uh, Ramban wonders, like, what good is it going to do them to have meat for one night or two? That's not going to satisfy them. Right, so therefore he says, um, right, he says, now what, if, so if that's the case, if there was man for all 40 years, or there was slav for all 40 years, just like there was man, why does the Torah only talk about the man? So his answer is, because the man is a wholly miraculous thing, it's worth talking about in the Torah. And it just says that one line, the Slav arose, because there was nothing unnatural about the Slav. You can be followed by flocks of birds for 40 years, and as long as you engage in sustainable harvesting, there's no reason that they shouldn't last all 40 years. So Rabban says it's not that the Slav, the reason the Torah leaves it out is not because God is unhappy about the Slav, it's not because there aren't really a Slav, it's, it's just because, what's the big deal? They said, who's, right, we had meat, and they get meat. But there's nothing miraculous, and the Torah only bothers 
talking about miracles. Ramban, I think, generally has a uh, has a fairly strong position about what it's worth the Torah talking about and what it's not worth the Torah talking about. Um, so this, right, so if it's not miraculous, it's not worth the Torah talking about it. Okay, so now he says, okay, now Ramban said, but if you take this explanation, so now you have to explain to me what changes, right? Why all of a sudden, in the Midbar, do the Slav become deadly if they're actually with them all 40 years? So he says, Vinyan HaSlav what about the second story about Midbar about the Slav? The reason for that is that the the, the meat, the Slav, was not given to them so they could eat as much as they wanted. The bread was given and everybody reached the stage of satiety, La Sova, but the man was not given La Sova, and then Ramban says something very radical. He says, and it seems likely, that it was only the adults, or I think more probably the, the only the great ones among them, right? The the elite, they were the ones who collected the Slav. Or even more radically, that the that you couldn't find Slav everywhere, even though the story seems to be right, the, the narrative that we have seems to suggest that there is Slav everywhere, right? Because our sto- the story says. Vatal sorry, Vatal Slav. Where are we? Uh, it covers the whole camp. But Ramban says, you know what? Actually, that's just a um, that's an exaggeration. What really happens is Oshayami's Damin Lachasidim Shibahem. Right? That it was um, right, that it was uh, that if you were pious, then you found quail. And if you weren't, you didn't. So the people who didn't get the Slav, either the young people or the ordinary people or the right, or the people who weren't so pious, they were made even hungrier because now there is meat, but they don't get it. So they're desirous of it and starving. Because Ramban says it doesn't say anything. By the man, it says that they right that they somehow end up with an equal result, but it never says that by the Slav. Now I point out that it's not quite true. It doesn't say anything about the Slav here in Shemot about right, how much who gets what. But Ramban says since it doesn't say that, we can assume that just like it was a natural course of events that the um, right that the Slav was just a natural event, so we assume that it was distributed in a natural way as opposed to the supernatural way. Where the, which, in which the man was distributed, where everybody ends up with some degree alike. So the Chena Marsham, so it says, remember that the Asaf Sufashir Bekirbot Hisavutava, that there's some kind of Asaf Suf, whatever that means, Erevrav, whatever you think the Asaf Suf were, they are, they are hungry. Now, why are they hungry if the Slav is still there? Because they never got any. Vamari writes, Vayeshuva Yifku Gam Bnei Yisrael, Shiru Gam Mehem Buchim Velokol Kulam, right? Not all of Bnei Yisrael, only some of Bnei Yisrael. And so now God responds to them by saying, "Okay, you want slav? You can have all the slav you want." And it turns and it turns deadly. Um, but then Rabban has it even, you know, as, as a uh, after he says all this, he says, "Well, derechapkat." But you know what? If you really ask me, what actually happened? I guess He says, "You know, the slav used to come once in a while, the way birds do." The man was always there. And that was the essence of their complaints. The essence of their complaint was we're going to die. It wasn't, right? And also, by the way, we also want something that we also like meat once in a while. 
And so God said, okay, here's me once in a while in a, you know, the way meat, you're right, you might have thought that you're not going to get meat out here in the desert, but guess wilderness, but guess what? There are migratory birds that pass through once in a while you can have meat. Okay, that explanation is of a piece of the Ramban's notion that we don't bother mentioning the Slav because the Slav is just a, um, a natural event, what he calls a, yeah, perhaps what he calls a nasty star in which things happen that do not break the ordinary course of nature, but are, um, but nonetheless are part of, very explicitly part of, a, of an intended, uh, of, a, of a directed, uh, a directed divine plan. Um, okay. So now, um, the thing that really interests me uh, most, though, about Ramban, and this is the, um, I think the moral issue is, why would it, why would it be that God would go to all this effort to give this, right, to, to have the man turn out the same, and yet when it comes to the meat, God isn't bothered by that at all, and he, um, and he just leaves it up as a free-for-all, right? Why is there, what is, what is the more, what's the moral, the, mor- the moral lesson of the equality of the man if the Slav is left as a, as a free-for-all and he can imagine a world in which the man is perfectly, right, is perfectly equal, but only the more powerful people get the Slav or only the rich people get the Slav or only the pious people get the Slav. What underlying message are we trying to, uh, are we trying to learn? So I want to point out a couple of other things about the, the way the narrative plays out, and then we're going to turn to that. Um, so the Sneichel Tov um, seems to, right, says, right. I don't know what Ketuot means there. That, right, so the Sneichel Tov seems to learn that the Slav is either like Ramban intermittent or like uh, like before, sure, it happened only once. Okay, that ties into that. I wanted to bring in one other piece of information, which is um, in uh, Tehillim, we have a, a retelling, we have a retelling of the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And what it says is, uh, right, they didn't have faith in God. They didn't believe in his in his redemption. So God commands the clouds above and opens the doors of heaven. And he rains man on them. And the grain of heaven, the Gan Shemayim, right? So human right, so human beings eat lechem abirim, which we'll see the Gemara interprets as the, the bread of angels. There's that word again. And he sends them food um, to eat to society. And then um, right, then the clouds, right, clouds come from heaven. And they and and uh, the winds blow strongly. And then God rains um, rains uh, birds on them. So the question is: Are these things happening? Are these things happening simultaneously, or is it offering you a sequential uh, a sequential thing where first the lechem abirim happens, and then the afar, and then the the Elf-Kanaf happens, and that would support the Chor Shor's uh, interpretation, uh, right? Which where, where really the only story that happens is one of Bamidbar, which is Givro Tata'ava. Okay, side thing just to look at, you can see that that Parakatilim is set up with these uh, perfect parallelism, except all of a sudden there's this break. The Afa Shemal, the Afa Lakim right? So the 
the meter is broken in order to break the um, to break to break the um, the, the Right to convey the sense of shock when all of a sudden uh, God, God is angry at them. Okay, that's not my issue. Let's take a look at what Lechon Abirim Machal Ish uh, means and what the Gemara does with it. So, if we go back to the um, to the first time Chaman makes an appearance on page one, so we'll see that uh, right. So the Slav the Slav uh, goes up at night and it settles around the camp, and then the Poker. There's the dew, and the dew rises. So the man is described as something called dak mechuspas. So dak, we could assume, means something thin, attenuated, but we haven't the faintest idea what mechuspas means. So the Gemara asks the question, what is mechuspas? Uh, what's dak mechuspas? So Rishlakish says, melts in your hand, not in your mouth. Right, literally. Uh, right, it's saying that melts, right, melts on your hand. Right, so it's like it offers a very literal meaning. It's something that is absorbed entirely into your 248 organs. Right, there's a right rabbinic. Rabbinics have have there's 365 tendons, ligaments, etc., and 248 organs, whatever those avarim, which includes limbs. But not clear how we how we measure them. How does he get that? Because mikluspas adds up. The Gematria to 248. So Gemara says, hang on a sec, Mikhuspas is really 254. Rav says, and that's how we have it, Mikhuspas that if you spelled it with the Vav between the Chet and the Samach, it would be 254, but we have it, right, we spell it Chaser, no Vav, Mikhuspas is 248. Okay, so Rav has this fascinating claim that what the Man was something that's completely absorbed into the body. Okay, what does that mean? So that the Gemara immediately connects this to a, a brayta which says lechem abirim machal ish lechem shemalachei hashereit ochlinoto. So this is bread that the angels eat. Okay, there's a whole separate tension we can obviously get into here, which is who says that angels eat, and that uh, I think I gave it as Ashkamashir once. Um, I have a share on the website was whether whether angels fast on Yom Kippur. Uh, it's my Dr. Michael Hammer, Hammer Memorial share, um, where the question is. So when we're on Yom, when we're on Yom Kippur, um, we imagine ourselves as angels. So usually we think that's because angels don't eat, right? So that's why that's why we fast. So we'll be like angels. But the um, but here the Gemara says that angels do eat. So it's more right. It's a more challenging, complicated notion. What it means to be like angels by fasting on Yom Kippur. We'll see what it means in a moment. So that's Rabbi Akiva's position. But when these words are said before Rabbi Shmuel. He says to them, "Go say to Rabbi Akiva, Akiva, you made a mistake. What do angels eat? Right? Right? So he says, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes up in Harsina, he doesn't eat and drink for forty nights. So that must be Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to Shemayim. So he's like an angel. So we see that Moshe right, that angels don't eat at all. So now Rabbi Shmuel says, so what do I? What does lechem abirim mean? So he says, I. We might have thought that." Absorbed into 248 organs, that means it's it's angel food. No, he says that's the that that position is my position. That lechem abirim doesn't mean angel food. What it means is um, food that is completely absorbed by the body. Ah, so now he says elamani So why does right if the Jews are eating the man for 40 years in the desert, 
and the man is completely absorbed in the body, that means there's no need to excrete. So why do we need, uh, why do we have a halacha which says you have to go outside the camp and dig a latrine, um, right? When you go to the bathroom, they should never have to go to the bathroom. So the answer is, what it is, is, right, these are the things that the merchants, they would buy snacks from merchants, and the snacks did not, were not completely absorbed by the body, and people could never resist junk food. Um, so, B'nai Yisrael, right, so even though B'nai Yisrael, but eating the man would never have had to excrete, there's still halachos about the bathroom because they still bought junk food. Right? The temptations of junk food show up elsewhere. This is also why Amalek gets to attack them later. Uh, we say, why is Amalek getting to attack them? They're inside the Ananea Kavod, right? Aren't they protected by the clouds? The answer is that the clouds didn't let the junk food merchants in. So they would go out and uh, to, buy, to buy junk food, and that's when Amalek could come and attack them, right? It's a very interesting notion of where the Yisra uh, stays in. Okay, however, Rebezim Parta says, no, even the things that, even the things that they bought from Motolam, right, the man mafigan, the man was a perfect, uh, right, the man was, 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 an, was a, a, um, a universal enzyme. Anything that, as long as you had man in your system, right, it was, it was, right, it was probiotic, and everything in your system would get broken down, and you never had to go to the bathroom. So therefore, why is there a bathroom halacha? Because later, after they sin, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to them, Ani amarti yu I said you'll be like the angels, now I'm going to force you to, to, to go up to three parsod back in order to find a, uh, order to find a bathroom. We follow all the halachas of the, um, of the bathroom. Okay. And then, right, so here it seems that the, Right, that they that being that not going to the bathroom makes you like angels, right? The Gemara up here suggested the position that it's absorbed totally, so you don't have to go to the bathroom is the position of Rabbi Shmuel and not the position of Rabbi Akiva. But it turns out Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva aren't really arguing about that. Uh, that what they're arguing about is Rabbi Shmuel thinks that angels don't eat at all, Rabbi Akiva thinks angels eat but but don't have to go to the bathroom. Um, okay, and then we have Rabbi Shmuel comes along once more and he says. Right, so that means right. This here, Rabbi Shmuel is the one who says it gets it gets absorbed by uh, by by all by all the the organs. So what about bathroom? The bathroom is um, things that come to them from overseas. Okay, here's my thing. Right, we have this claim that if you the man is perfectly absorbed in the body, it has no waste material at all. And so now we're trying to figure out, so why are there bathroom halachas? So we have answer number one, is there bathroom halachas because they buy things from other merchants, right? Really, that's answer number two. It's answer number two, uh, number two as well. They buy, th- right? they, they buy outside food. Um, okay, so here's, to me, the problem is, but there's a really much simpler answer. The much simpler answer is that, the, that while the man was absorbed totally by the body, the slav, the meat, was not. So it's utterly puzzling that this Gemara goes out of its way to tell you that the, uh, right, it's, 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 hang on a sec, why do they have to go to the bathroom if all they ate was man, and man is this perfect food with no waste materials? The Gemara should have been answered, but they're eating basar all the way through. And it doesn't. So one possibility is that this Gemara holds like Bechor Shor, that they're not actually eating slav, slav or it holds like uh, Ibn Kaspi, that... Um, that they ate the slav once, and then they would never have to go to the bathroom again because they only ate the slav once. Maybe that's why they only ate the slav once. Why would you eat the slav again if you have a 
a perfect food, and the, and the slob messes up your digestive system. It seems very hard for me to square this with um, to square this with uh, Ramban's claim that they're eating the slob all along, because if the slob is there all forty years, it should that should be the obvious uh, that should be the obvious answer. Okay, but part of what worries me about this is so now we have this very clear contrast where the man is perfect health food and it's distributed perfectly equally, whereas the slav is not perfect junk food, unless you right, unless you think, because there's no drusha that the slav gets absorbed in 248 organs, and slav is bigimatria 336, not 248, can't get it to fit, can't get it to fit in the gematria, even if you put a yud in, it's 346, it doesn't help any. Um, so what kind of depiction of a why is it that God gives them the man in an egalitarian way and then lets them eat the slav however they want, assuming he does? And if not, why doesn't he respond to the request about meat? And why? what kind of people who have a perfect diet nonetheless are spending their time uh, eating things that force them to go to the bathroom? They can be like angels, right? It's right, a fascinating picture, right? The man is intended to make them like angels. And they deliberately choose not to be angels um, in one version because they eat the Slav. And the other version, right, the other version where the man would have solved everything, uh, it's because they sin. But that explanation doesn't seem to fit the, doesn't seem to me to fit the, um, right? there's, no, there's nothing about the drusha that provides the idea of a, the man as universal enzyme. So it seems to be a much more compelling thing that we're depicting B'nai Israel all the way through as eating the slav, even though um, right, eating right, eating things other than the man, even though the man is the perfectly digestible food. Um, and the other thing we get from Israel is that even though the um, even though the man is distributed in this perfectly equal way, they don't derive from that that everything right. They don't implement or even make an effort. To implement God's system in um, in the rest of their lives, but when it comes to everything else, people just grab whatever they can. You would have thought they would learn, right? Either people are always grab, right? The great people are grabbing the slav. The pious people are allowing the slav to come to them and not redistributing it. Or when it right, or when it comes to kibrot and tava, even though they should have learned from the man that everybody only gets exactly what they um, exactly the same amount, everybody still grabs. So what is the purpose of the whole story of the man? It doesn't teach them anything. Okay, so I wanted to point out a couple of other uh, other contrasts. So the man is defined as right. The man is defined as something that is so completely absorbed in the body, so it has no waste materials. But let's talk about see how the Michilza describes it. Right. So the question about the man is so the, everybody goes out. Let's let's take it. Let's take a look now at the at actually the parsha of the man itself. We haven't looked that closely yet. So here's what happens. Here's what the orders about the man are. Or back on page one. So Hashem says to them, uh, This is the bread that God has given you to eat. This is what God commands you. You should gather it. So that's a very interesting phrase. What does mean? Um, right, it sounds like a subjective measurement. Omer lagul but then right after it gives you the subjective measurement, 
It gives you an objective measurement. Every head gets an omer in accordance with the number of people there are. And then Bnei Yisrael go out and collect it, but you look at two Hamarbe and Hamamit, so it sounds like they get different amounts, the Marbe and the Hamamit. But then, by Yemodu Omer, then they measure it by Omer, and the, mar- the, the Marbe doesn't have more, and the Mamit doesn't have less. And then once again, it's Ish Lefiachlo, right? So the whole story seems to be a, a series of paradox, paradoxical statements about whether it's being um, collected in some kind of subjective manner, manner. Everybody gets what they what they ordinarily eat, or what they want to eat, or what they need to eat, or whether it's being collected objectively. Okay, so now we go to uh, right now we go to the uh, Michilta. Michilta says, right, so, sorry, so the end is, so the, then, Moshe Rabbeinu, sorry, I, I should finish the story up there. Okay, so those are the, those are the paradoxical instructions. Now, what, what happens to the money itself in the, right, um, that's, um, that's not collected? Right, so it says that, um, here, um, the Moshe Lehem, so Moshe says to them, Nobody should leave anything over till morning. And they, um, right, they don't listen to they don't listen to Moshe. And people leave it till the morning, and what happens? It gets wormy, and Moshe gets upset at them. And they collect it every morning. There's that phrase again. But it gets hot, and it melts. Okay, now what does it mean? So. It, Remember that Rishlakish said Michluspas means it's already melty. But let's assume that we're not working in that in that universe, right? They, um, and we're the Khamashamash means that somehow it becomes unusable later in the day. So that suggests that there are leftovers in the uh, there are leftovers of the man in the wilderness. Not all of it is used. So that's a little striking because we just learned that the whole point of the man is that every bit of it is used and there's nothing there's not right. There's not right. Nothing gets excreted. So you would think that the man would be a model of environmental efficiency and lack of waste. That seems not to be the case, because right, unless you think that they collect it every morning, everybody according to what they eat, what they need, and the chama shemesh v'namais, and then and they have to eat it quickly because they don't eat it. They don't eat it quickly. As soon as it gets hot, it melts and they can't eat it anymore. Maybe that's what Rish Lakish meant. Um, so everybody had to eat the man first thing. First thing in the morning, but it doesn't seem right because when it comes to Shabbos, right? Moshe tells them, "You better, you know, prepare whatever you want because right, it's going to last till tomorrow." So we have to say, "Okay, maybe ordinarily, if you left anything over, it got wormy, and if you didn't eat it by brunch time, then it melted, and just like the stuff left over for Shabbos didn't get didn't get wormy overnight, so right, if you left it overnight, so also it didn't melt, and Shabbos was different, and during the week they just ate it." Straight as breakfast cereal, and then for Shabbos they cook. But that seems to be a little bit of a, a little bit of a little bit of a stretch. So the Chama Shemesh Ben the most likely thing seems to be that it's the stuff that's left in the, um, it's the stuff that's left in the field that melts. And if it's the stuff that's left in the field that melts, so that means that there's leftover stuff in the fields. Why is there leftover stuff in the fields if it's supposed to be uh, perfectly perfectly efficient? So one explanation, uh, which was quoted by Rashi, but we'll, we'll learn, we'll see it from the the Hilta that Rashi presumably got it from. The Chama Shemesh Vinames, Kevin Shizarachat Alav Chama. Once the sun shone on it, Ayav Posher Viorid, it would melt, it would it would warm up and melt. Vinachalim Moshchimim Menu Vilchin Liyama Gadol, 
and then it would turn into these, um, right, it would flow into streams, and the streams would flow into the Mediterranean. And, and right, various kinds of uh, edible animals would come and drink from it. I don't know why they, I don't know why Hulchin Liyamagadol makes that relevant, because I don't think that animals drink uh, salt water. But, um, okay, maybe they do. Hulchin, there are salt licks, maybe, I don't know. Maybe there are there are uh, animals that come drink the Mediterranean. In uh, any case, this version, right, maybe they're drinking on its way. They're flowing to the Yamagadol, and they drink it on its way. And then everybody else eats the other people come and eat the animals because the animals, I guess, uh, leave the boundaries of Eretz Yisrael. And so the so the flavor of man that God gives to, to Bnei Yisrael spreads out through the world. So this is a really interesting notion, right? It's part of the whole the idea of of the world being blessed through right being blessed through Bnei Yisrael. But a really odd notion that it's blessed with the leftovers, uh, but why are there extras? So you can say that they're extras because God wants to give them to the rest, right, to the rest of the world. But then it's not really because of what God gave to Bnei Israel. So this is a very puzzling, um, puzzling explanation that seems to make the problem worse rather than better. Really, now the Shir Ma'on says the following: The Chamashan for the Meis Hadinish Ar, Velo Yorad Min Hashemayim Elokipiat Sorech Velo Yoter. But all that came down from Shemayim was exactly what was necessary. So I don't really understand. Um, I don't really understand how that ties in, right? If, if it's leftovers, so then what does it mean that only the only necessary was left over? That's a little that's a little odd for me. Uh, his other explanation he says is that um, that really what fell from Shemayim was exactly an omer for everybody, but there were some people who didn't collect the full omer, even though magically. It turned out that the full Omer uh, ended up in their buckets, but um, but there was still stuff left over in the field, and that's the stuff that's melted because when their when their uh, buckets magically expanded, the uh, it didn't do it by right. You know, we're not subject to the laws of whatever it is, right? You can't produce food in Harry Potter from nothing, so you didn't have to bring the food from there. You could do it. But the most interesting explanation to me is the last explanation offered here. It says the Odish Lamar so if the exact amount came down, then there would be no capacity, he says, for people to violate the command, everybody should take one 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 omer one one omer per head. So there had to be extra in order for there to be a temptation. So you could say no. Some people could take more, then there wouldn't be enough for the other people. Um even if you had the exact amount, but either that would be, that's not really the same temptation as taking more when you're not taking away from somebody else, right? That That's a, it's a greater temptation when you can say it's a victimless crime. Um, or you, but you you can say that everybody was there at the same time, so you couldn't get away with it if that was the case. But this is a really interesting notion that God deliberately puts down and puts down an excess in order to, in order to allow them to disobey. And then if we put these together, we say, and the result of B'nai Yisrael not, um, not taking that excess is that the bracha spreads out to the rest of the world. But this to me just um, just accentuates the challenge. So what does what is God trying to teach them by making sure that everybody gets an omer by the man 
Um, the answer, right? The answer is God's teaching them something, but even then, it can't be that God makes it rigid and that there's no occasion for them to take more, right? It's not a it's not a system which with complete inventory control. God deliberately sets it up so they have the possibility to take more. So you could argue, if you're a philosopher, saying that if there wasn't the possibility, so then it's not just that they don't have the right to disobey, they don't actually train themselves. And you can't imagine, right, if they don't actually train themselves, then the first time they have an opportunity to take more, they will, which is what happens in Kibra the Tava. Uh, so the problem is it doesn't work then, right? You might, even if they're, the, even if the purpose of the man was to constantly train them not to take everything, but only to take what they really, really needed. Uh, and you can say, well, that was a message to the man, but then it fails, uh, then it fails entirely. So that doesn't strike me as a compelling explanation um, either. Okay. Um, right. Um, Lekachtov says that, um, right, that everybody, right, that if they took more, uh, took more, it would rot. Um, Ibn, Ezra, Ibn Ezra suggests that, um, that really, when it says everybody got the same amount, it doesn't mean that. It just means that everybody got it. Uh, that everybody got what they needed, and the most anyone ever needed was an omer, which is a little bit, a little bit of an odd explanation. Um, Rebbe Ramam says that everybody got the same amount, and miraculously, everybody needed the same amount. That also seems to be to me to be to some extent, um, to some extent cheating. Uh, perhaps the the most interesting uh, comment that somebody makes in this egalitarian um, structure. Is the nativ. Um, so the nativ says that uh, right. Remember, everybody has to take an if it's an omer, if it's an omer per um, it's an omer per person. Um, and but if but some there's some people who collect per households, and so they collect an omer an omer per household. Um, so the nativ raises the makes the following claim here. Uh, says we're on page eight. Um, Okay. Um, so first of all, the tzivah is bothered by how you know if everybody gets an omer, uh, but that's not that's not really fair because different people need different amounts, right? So we saw Ibn Ezra solved that by saying every right that the most anybody got was an omer, and nobody needed more than an omer, and Rambam uh, Rambam solves it by saying that God miraculously made everybody need exactly an omer. Um, the Chassam Sofer we didn't see that has this. Uh, says that the, an omer is actually a subjective category. It's measured, it's measured like the ama, which is measured by your own fingers. So the the omer is measured by, by your own forearm. So the omer is is really a volume measurement, and it's measured by subjective finger width. Um, and Siva has this fascinating claim that the man is just a shell. That's why Kizra got. And the volume that you gathered was the volume was a volume of shells, but what you ate was not so much the shell as what was inside the shell. And was inside the shell was proportional to your needs. So, right, he says, imagine there's a number of seeds inside them, and if you're a, a big person, then you get lots of seeds, and if you're a small person, then you get very few seeds. And that's his solution. What I wanted to point out was the last, uh, the last thing in the tiv. Chesiv says, "V'ish la'sher ba'lotikachu, lo shehemuchuyav kol ish lechol omro." Right now, that everybody had to eat the full omer, ela kol asher ba'ohel yicholim lechol omer shelo. Everybody, right? Everybody who was in your tent could, right? You could share, right? And some people say that 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 the reason the way we solved it was by giving out household portions. So some people ate more, some people ate less. It always worked out that an omer per person in a household got you the exact amount. But it still throws in one other thing. He says 
ונכלל בזה, and included in this notion that you could eat each other's Omer, דאפילו מי שנכנס להלוב רשאי להאכילו. Right? You're also, right, that if you, ha- you were allowed to have guests, and when you brought guests, the guests could eat your Omer, um, and they didn't have to bring their own. This is against a, uh, uh, another Gemara, perhaps, which the Abba wouldn't understand it that way, to say that you could tell right, who belonged to what household by seeing how many Omers right, showed up in their uh, right, so if you right, if if you wanted to know like which family a kid belonged to, so just see did they get the omer, which family got the omer for that kid. But it seems is not 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 obvious. Um, but here's what I want to say. But what the seems says at the end is says, hang on a sec. So we're living in an economy where everybody gets exactly what they need. In an economy where everybody gets exactly what they need, there is no space for generosity. This is Locke's defense of private property. There's no, if everybody gets the food they need for their house, so then what sort of social life is there? Everybody's right. So this is this fascinating claim. So included in this notion was that anybody who entered your tent to visit was allowed to eat your food. It wasn't, right, it wasn't dedicated to you alone. There wasn't a, a tracking thing that would you know, set up an alarm if somebody tried to eat somebody else's omer. But you weren't allowed to sell it. So this notion, right, which a number of commentators say, like the the purpose of all these regulations, the reason that the man melts away is not because we object to waste, it's because we object to capitalism. That if there were if there were man left over in the fields, then people would try and build man businesses and they would try preserving it and selling it. And the idea was to some extent the man is supposed to Right, they're also the really ideas that are, I guess, uncomfortable for uh, modern first worlders. One idea that uh, you know people have is that is that the money is designed to create food insecurity. Uh, we quote a Gemara which says anybody who has enough food today and worries about tomorrow is mikitani emuna, is not right, is not part of the faithful. And that's an idea that we tend not to like nowadays very much at all. Right? We want to eliminate food insecurity, and we think that it's part of human flourishing is not having to worry. I don't have to worry about your food. I guess the answer is if you have a muna, you don't worry about your food either. Um, but generally we say in some right? So that's a complicated theological uh, theological notion. And the second is what right, so the mun on the surface, the mun seems to be setting up a um right a, a egalitarian, if you could call it the socialist framework, where all the, the necessity of life is distributed by is distributed by a central a central force will right, God. Everybody gets exactly what they need. And the whole goal is, right, and the reason this is done is because we don't want people to engage in commerce um, about, to engage in commerce about bread. So you might think, oh, this is an anti-capitalist thing. So what I always, what I want to point out every time we mention this, right, is that um, this is all true about the man, but in the background, you always have to think about, but what about the Slav? What about the, right, why does God limit this entire magical uh, or, or right, miraculous, right? Miraculous is better than magical. Why does God limit the right? Limit all the miracles only to the man, and right when right why right when you have the Slav in the background all the time, right all the time. And that's what and eventually the Slav leads to disaster. Why doesn't God regulate the Slav the same way He regulates the man? Um, so I want to I want to leave with that, right? That to me seems to be the really the right. I think too often. Um, because the Parsha focuses solely on the man, everybody thinks that 
right, all the interpretations say the message must be contained entirely in the man. And my thesis is that in order to understand what we're saying about the man, you always have to explain, well, why is it only the man? And you have to explain the uh, the curious case of the quail in the night. Okay, that brings us uh, past. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.